You're listening to highlights from the creative process of One Planet Podcast's interview with Candice Fujikane. This podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. The struggle for a planetary future calls for a profound epistemological shift. Indigenous ancestral knowledges are now providing a foundation for our work against climate change, one based on what I refer to as indigenous economies of abundance, as opposed to capitalist economies of scarcity. Rather than seeing climate change as apocalyptic, we can see that climate change is bringing about the demise of capital, making way for indigenous life ways that center familial relationships with the earth and elemental forms. Kanaka Maoli are restoring the worlds where their attunement to climatic change and their capacity for kilo adaptation, regeneration, and transformation will enable them to survive what capital cannot. In this way, mapping abundance is a refusal to succumb to capital's logic that we have passed an apocalyptic threshold of no return. Kanakamaoli and critical settler cartographies in Hawaii provide visual and textual illustrations of flourishing indigenous economies of abundance. Mapping abundance is a profoundly decolonial act. David Lloyd has argued that it is precisely the fear of abundance that is inscribed in neoliberal capital. Abundance is both the objective and the limit of capital. The crisis for capital is that abundance raises the possibility of a just redistribution of resources. Capital depends on, on growth through the manufacturing of hunger. Thus, capitalist modes of production manufacture the perception of scarcity to produce markets. To extend Loy's analysis, I argue that while capitalist economies proffer empty promises of imaginary plenitude, ancestral abundance feeds for generations. Writing from a Potawatomi perspective, environmental biologist and poet Robin Wall Kimmerer contends that recognizing true abundance erodes the foundations of capitalist economies. Quote, in a consumer society, contentment is a radical proposition. Recognizing abundance rather than scarcity undermines an economy that thrives by creating unmet needs. A Kanaka Maoli economy of abundance is one of Ma'u, a fullness that comes from sharing, trading, gift-giving, conserving, and adapting. Economies of abundance create the conditions for people to see beyond the competition for scarce resources to our own regenerative capacity to cultivate abundance. To map abundance is not a luxury, but in an urgent insistence on life. Envisioning and practicing abundance is a necessity in the face of the deadly consequences of occupation, settler colonial genocidal tactics, and corporate-induced climate change. Restoration projects show us that restorative events have outwardly cascading effects on ecological systems that are contingent on one another. And bottom-up cascades are as important in this era of global climate change as top-down cascades. If small incremental adverse changes like a one degree Celsius increase in global temperatures have exponentially harmful effects, other incremental changes to repair environmental damage too have exponential restorative effects 
that ripple out across ecosystems around the world. Mapping abundance offers us a way to rethink the scalar privileging of global corporate and state solutions over localized restoration movements. So I've been a part of the Hawaiian movement for political independence for over 20 years. And uh, the question was always, how does climate change fit into movements for sovereignty? And when I really looked at what Kanaka Maoli are doing, they don't worry about trying to take down capitalism. They are living a decolonial future in the present. So they simply act, you know, if they're at a restoration project, they're acting as if they were independent already. That is a way of focusing indigenous economies around food production rather than around the state. And when Kanakamali talk about statist and non-statist forms of nationhood, they're talking about a land-based governance that centers land and the regeneration of abundance. My job is actually to participate in the kind of decolonial joy of growing a new conception of governance, of participating in rebuilding what, what Noi Gujir Ka'opua calls rebuilding the structures that feed us in order to make possible that decolonial future. What we're learning is land stewardship. So it's not about ownership. It's about how to best be stewards of the land. And a very important concept in Hawaii is aloha aina. And aloha aina is both a noun and a verb. Uh, as a noun, it means um, a patriot or one who has a great love for the lahui or the collective of Hawaiian peoples or the collective of peoples in Hawaii. And it also means uh, it's a verb that, that means a great love for the land. So caring for that land is the central principle of conceptions of governance, conceptions of how to reproduce abundance and food, uh, how to grow pilina or relationships between people. And I really gravitated towards more Hawaiian conceptions of the world when I saw that testifying in front of state agencies, you don't want to get locked in kind of a hermetically sealed idea of what land means in a Western sense. Uh, I had to learn how to speak Olelo Hawaii, so I've taken Olelo Hawaii Hawaiian language. And what I do is I go through the old newspapers and I go through uh, the mo'olelo and the chants. I take classes actually from a hula master, and she teaches us lessons in land stewardship that she uh, and her mother, Puolani Kanakaole Kanahele, have learned through examining mele and song, oli, chants, that explain how kupuna in the past approached climate change events. And so for myself as a settler, I've worked with a lot of the activists and the restoration projects in Hawaii, and I've come to the understanding of myself as a settler, aloha aina, meaning that I still recognize the kinds of privileges that I'm accorded in this settler colonial system, but that I stand with Kanaka 
for political independence, and I stand for lands and waters in Hawaii. So I've been arrested and, you know, I stand on the front line. So I, I give testimony on the one hand, but then I also stand on the front lines and get arrested on the other. I think for Kanakabali, there's this conception of working with the elements instead of working against the elements. So how do we work with the elements? How do we make the most of climate change events? How do we turn climate change events into larger events that can possibly restore abundance in unexpected ways, like in cultivating freshwater fish ponds? Um, I have been also tied to struggles for environmental justice. Uh, and I've, I've sat in courtroom cases so I can see that what's happening now on a global scale is that there are corporations that use the same damaging rhetoric in environmental statements in 40 countries. And if we can pinpoint the logic that they're trying to disseminate, um, for example, in Hawaii for Mauna Kea, the logic they came up with to defend the construction of an industrial complex in a conservation zone is that there are already 12 telescopes up there. The introduction of one more will not tip the balance from a less than significant impact to a significant impact. And now that's a ludicrous argument because it's the kind of argument that says, well, there's plastic in the ocean. It doesn't matter if we add more. So if we work in a concerted kind of effort, I hope that we can try to see how the same tactics are being used all over the world. And that if we can come up with arguments against them, that we can build on each other's struggles. And this is how Kanakamali are allied with indigenous land defenders in other places for example, through the protection of water. So Kanakamali activists traveled to Standing Rock to stand with the Sioux water protectors there. And they've also been a part of the Idle No More movement, which originated out of Canada. So there's ways in which standing for land, uh, we've shared strategies of nonviolent direct action. Yeah, I want them to think about a decolonial future that people are currently enacting in the present. So when you go to a fish pond, you're not just seeing how Hawaiians did things in the past. You're seeing how they do things now and how they are teaching young people to do things in the future. And so that sense of the livingness of history, of course, so much of what settler colonialism tries to do is to create a threshold of colonialism and to say that after colonialism, Hawaiians are no longer authentically Hawaiian. Uh, and then what they do is they preclude any um, interviews or any consultation with living practitioners because they don't want to acknowledge that culture and practices are still alive as they actually engage in that. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.